making the simple wise. We confess that your commands are pure, enlightening the eyes. And we confess that your precepts are right, and they rejoice the heart. And so we come with eager expectation to hear from you today. And we ask that you will lead us and guide us by your spirit into all truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, my two sons and I had the opportunity to hike the Grand Canyon with their grandfather traversing from the North Rim to the South Rim. And the day before the hike began, we met in Flagstaff, Arizona with our guide. And they told us to come down to the lobby with our backpacks. It all seemed a bit premature and odd. And then they informed us when we arrived in the lobby, looking rather odd with our backpacks, that they were going to pursue a gear check. And so our guide, Seamus, he sat down and began to rifle through our bags. And he was telling us, you need this, you don't need that. This will be helpful, this will not be helpful. This is what you need, this is what you don't need for the journey that's ahead. After years of experience, he knew what we needed for the hike, and he knew exactly what we didn't need, what was going to be extraneous. And in Colossians 2, we have the Apostle Paul engaging us with something of the same dynamic, a gear check, as he ministers to this young congregation in Colossae, which was being troubled by false teachers. They were being told that they needed additional things. And what he does is he explains what is necessary. And also, he says, most importantly, what is not needed for the Christian life. It's important for us to recognize, though, that this isn't just a historical word spoken then and there at some point in the past. But as we listen today, it's also a word of God's truth here and now in the present for us to abide in. And what happens here is that God directs us in what is needed, in what is necessary, and in what is not for us to commune with him. Because see, in Colossians 2, he directs us in these two ways, explaining what is extraneous and also explaining what is essential for our relationship with him. So let's look at those two things this morning. First, in verse 8, here we see what is extraneous or what is unnecessary. Paul begins, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He begins here with a warning. See to it, beware, take good care, make sure that no one deceives you, that no one takes you captive according to empty deception and what he calls philosophy. Now, this is not the same use of the word philosophy that we have today. He's not dismissing the use of all philosophical systems. But the word philosophy was broadly used in the ancient world to refer to any system of thought, particularly religious thought. And so Paul is referring here to some form of philosophy that was adding things to Jesus. It is unnecessary, and we must make sure that we're not overcome by it. And then in the second half of the verse, he explicitly delineates what makes this philosophy problematic. 
And there's three things that we find here. First, we see the source of the problem. And the source of this problem is that it's according to human tradition. This is what is wrong with the philosophy. And human traditions are simply beliefs, and they are practices that come not from God's wisdom that have been revealed to us, but those that have come out of our own mind that we have conjured up ourselves. They may be well-intentioned, but this doesn't let them off the hook. It doesn't excuse them. John Calvin argues that only God can be God's own witness and that the Bible never gives us permission. It never permits us to substitute our own beliefs and our own ideas and our own practices, that we want to listen carefully to God and what he reveals and how he leads us and guides us in the way, how he brings us to himself and how he directs and governs our lives. And we must receive revelation from him in order to know him. And this is what Paul is arguing against. Jesus identifies this problem in Mark chapter 7 with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now they were, by the way, one of the most biblically literate groups, but also in their own day they had accumulated their own mass of human traditions. And listen to what Jesus says in verses 6 through 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he summarizes in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And friends, this is what is wrong with human traditions is the source. And it displaces the very word of God and it exalts the wisdom and thought and knowledge of man above God. We have no permission to go outside of God's self-communication, how and where he has revealed himself in our beliefs and practices. And so this is the first thing wrong with this philosophy. Now the second, we also see the content of the problem. Not only does he say it's according to human tradition, but he says it's also according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now this phrase, the elemental spirits of the world, no doubt most of you are looking at that and thinking, what in the world does that mean? The commentators agree with you. There have been more pages written about what this particular phrase means and they all argue and disagree with one another. We're not without hope though as to gaining some insight as to what the Apostle Paul means by this phrase, the elemental spirits of the world. If you advance a few verses down in chapter, uh, chapter 2 to verse 20, you'll see there some definition of what was involved in the elemental spirits. Paul says this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. And so, friends, what we find here is that this, these elemental spirits, or what could be translated, you'll see in the note of the ESV, elemental teachings, elementary principles, what is happening here is that certain regulations are being issued. You could say that ABCs of human behavior, and they are being mandated that people must follow them. 
And we, all, we also know from the broader context of the book of Colossians, it was not only these regulations that were being applied, but those regulations were connected to a set of doctrines about angels serving as mediators for human beings. And so through practices like fasting and dietary restrictions and certain kinds of prayers, we were to kind of gin up an enhanced communion with God through these angelic mediators. And this is the content of the problem. It's according to human tradition, but now we find that it has a specific problem with it because of the content of it is it's directing us away from Jesus, that it's subtracting from Jesus. It's drawing his glory to other things and saying these things bring you into communion with God. And the church in all of the ages, from the first century down to today, is constantly harassed by this problem, and it comes from all directions. We find it in progressive forms of thought that encourage Jesus as one mediator amongst many. The Colossian heresy had many mediators. It was pointing to many different good things, some things that were even true from the Bible, but things were being exalted, specifically angels, as being sufficient for mediating their communion with God. And so today we will hear, well, if it works for you, if Jesus is good for you, then choose him. And I'm glad that that's true for you, but he's not necessary for me. And friends, this form of thinking is just foreign to the logic of the gospel. That what we are introduced here to is the one mediator who stands between God and men. The one who is sufficient to handle human sin and to bring us into the presence of God. There's also conservative forms of thought. Oftentimes uh, responding to cultural pressures that add regulations to the gospel. Somewhat similar to what's happening here in Colossae. They strive to do so out of good motivations to build firm boundaries between the church and the world, and so regulations are added. But what happens is these regulations quickly become requirements, and as requirements, they box humans out, and we are told that they are necessities for us to commune with God. And they go beyond what God has revealed because they're from the source of a human tradition. And so this is the second problem, the second thing that we have to beware of, not to be captive by. But then we have a third and final description that really encapsulates it all. We see the core of the problem, and Paul simply says that it's not according to Christ. So these human traditions, these teachings according to the elementary principles, these are not according to Christ. This identifies the heart of the issue. They point us away. They point us in a different direction from Jesus. They are supplements to the gospel. And in supplementing the gospel, as we've seen over the past weeks, we supplant the gospel. They say that Jesus is insufficient when we know that he is the sufficient one. They say that you are empty when the gospel says that in Christ you are full, they say that you are incomplete. When the gospel says that you're complete in Christ, they say that you must supplement the gospel with their teaching when their teaching actually supplants the gospel. And friends, this is what we are to learn here from Paul's argument. 
that what is extraneous and unnecessary are these supplements, that which is according to human tradition, that which is according to the elementary principles of the world, that which is not according to Jesus. You don't need this in the bag as you take the hike. It's unnecessary, unhelpful. But second, Paul doesn't just leave us in the negative. He also speaks positively in verses 9 and 10 where he lays out for us what exactly is essential for the Christian life. If you follow with me there, for in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Now in verse 10, Paul does direct us to what is essential in directing us to Jesus in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In this statement, sometimes people can be confused reading the passage, thinking that this is a reference to Jesus' historical incarnation when he dwelled among us and walked among us as a human being. But this is not the, uh, the reference that Paul draws here because you see that he's referring to the ascended Jesus. And it points out something very significant for us, that Christ came into the world and he became a man and he died in our place and he was raised from the dead and then he ascended into right hand into the right hand of God as we confess in the creed week by week but when Jesus ascends to God he doesn't ascend as a ghost he doesn't ascend as an apparition he ascends to God as a human he has human form at God's right hand today and the fullness of deity dwells in him And friends, this sequence of events is critical to the Christian faith. It's God's announcement that he has refused our decision to rebel against him. He has renounced our renunciation of him. He has balled it up and thrown it away. Because what he has done in Jesus is he has made a way possible for sinful humans in physical flesh to commune with him the incomprehensible, infinite, and invisible God. He has closed that gap. Jesus ascends in the, f- in the flesh, bringing our humanity into communion with God. He's the mediator there in the presence of God on our behalf. And so you ask the simple question, why is that so important for the fullness of deity to dwell in him? If not for Jesus mediating, then we have no hope of reconciliation. If not for Jesus mediating, then we have no hope of communion with him. If not for Jesus mediating, then we cannot approach him. But the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, who came and died in our place, who was raised on our behalf, who is now ascended, he ascends for you. He ascends for me in order to be an intercessor on our behalf, to be a mediator on our behalf. And he does what no one else can do, what you cannot do for yourself. He brings you back into relationship with God. And this is God's way of renouncing our rebellion and overcoming it, bringing us in our human bodies, in all of our creatureliness, bringing us into relationship with himself. 
And Paul explains here that we have been filled in him. That is, filled in Christ. And what this means is that we've been united to him by his spirit. And so what belongs to Jesus by his nature is now ours by his grace. Because what is true of Jesus is now true of us because he has filled us. And so, friends, when someone tells us that we don't have everything that we need for salvation, we simply respond that, no, I am filled with Christ. This is what we tell ourselves. When our conscience tells us that we don't have what we need, that we're insufficient, we preach the gospel to ourselves, and we say, no, I am filled in Christ. He's the one who has done this. He's done it on your behalf. Filled in him, you share in everything that belongs to him. And friends, this is the announcement of the gospel. Salvation by grace. What God has done to restore his relationship with human beings. He's done it in the human flesh of Jesus in whom he dwelled fully. This and this alone is the grounds of salvation. And this and this alone is what is essential We're not to add anything, whether those be regulations or whether those be other mediators to him, because when we add to Jesus, we actually end up subtracting from him. He's sufficient. He is what you need. He is what I desperately need in order to have communion with God. Recently, my middle son graduated from high school, and for his high school graduation, a friend sent him a lottery ticket. We'd never played the lottery in the Colson house, so we eagerly got out our nickel and began to scratch, and we won. Five dollars. It did get me curious, because I began to ask the question, how many people actually go and claim this stuff? And how many cards just go missing? How many unclaimed lottery prizes are there out there. And so I got out the Google machine and began looking this up. And there's actually people who research this and they know a great deal about it. And the answer is clear. Billions. Billions go unclaimed every year. Every year, billions of dollars left on the table. And though winners Thousands fail to cash in on what is theirs. Now, I'm not encouraging you to play the lottery at the lucky store. But there's something important for us to recognize. That Paul has been urging us to see that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all sufficiency, everything we need is wrapped up in Jesus. And friends, we are like lottery winners who fail to cash in so many times. That we have all of this wealth, all of these riches, all of these benefits, the forgiveness of sins, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the hope of the world to come. And it's all secure. And it's all yours. And it's only yours because of Jesus. And what he does on your behalf, the one who is in in the head of all rule and authority, the one who is victorious and united to him, you are filled with all that is his. And so don't deprive yourself. Don't unnecessarily impoverish yourself. Know everything that is yours and know how to appropriate it by faith. 
Look to him. Set your eyes upon him. Believe in him. And friends, this is why we take care. This is why we beware. This is why we look not to be taken captive by empty and deceitful philosophy. It's not simply because we think we're right. It's simply because we know all the fullness, all the gifts, all the graces that are ours in Jesus. You have everything you need. You need no regulations to clean yourself up to get yourself there because you have the righteous one interceding on your behalf. You need no other mediator because he's sufficient and whole and he alone can get the job done. He doesn't ask you for assistance in getting that job done. He asks you to look to him in faith, to trust him, this sufficient Christ who needs no supplement, whose gospel we never want to supplant because he's rich and full and well-suited for the job that he's done for us. And so let's look to him and let's ask and apply for his help. Father, we rejoice in all that is ours in Jesus, the one who has been exalted to the head of all rule and authority and miraculously the one in whom we have been filled. Grant us today a deep and new and abiding appreciation of all that is ours in him. Captivate us with that vision that we not be taken captive by other forms of teaching. Draw us to Christ to know all of your goodness in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.